Hello, passion. That was one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. If you have your copy of the Word of God, would you turn to Philippians chapter 4? That's where we'll be in this session. And while you're turning there, let me say thank you to Shelly and to Louie for creating this space for us to set our minds on one of the most important things we could possibly focus our mind on at the beginning of a new year. So thank you. You know Donna and I love you, and we're so hopeful about the potential of these days. And I wonder if you're willing, if you would take a minute and, and pray along with me. And I just want to ask you if you're willing to take a moment and pray for yourself. Maybe this is the first time you've done it today, maybe the first time in a long time. But if you're willing, ask him, say, Lord, please teach me right now. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would speak through me and I would be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, passion exists for one glorious purpose, and that is to champion the truth that you and I are made for one thing, to know and enjoy and glorify God. That Colossians 1 says all things are made by Jesus and for him. The psalmist said that in his presence is fullness of joy, that nearness to him is our good. Philippians 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, pursue your joy in Jesus. That's what you're made for, to pursue and to praise him. And that's what these hours together have been about. And yet I'm here to warn you if we have an enemy, and the scriptures say that we do, I want to warn you that his strategy is not to convince you that God is not good or that his scripture is not true. He says, hey, if you want to pursue that cause, that's fine. Just make sure you look good while you do it. And make sure you go to the right university and get in the right college so you can pick the right major, so you can get good grades so you can get the right internship, so you can get the right job, so you can move to the city, so you can take over the world. But then you realize cities are expensive, and so you gotta get some roommates, and cities are really expensive, so now you need a lot of roommates. Now you got roommate drama, and then suddenly you meet somebody, and you go on some dates, and you go on more dates, and you go on more dates, and you go on more dates, and you meet their friends, and you meet their family, and they meet your friends and your family, and you go, are we going to get engaged? Are we going to get married? Are we going to move to the suburbs? Are we going to buy a house? Now I got a car payment, house payment, insurance payment, and suddenly I got to get uh, all this recorded on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, I got to dance, and on and on it goes. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> and nowhere in that were you convinced that God is not good or that his word is not true? You just, you just lost him somewhere along the way. 
And I'm here to warn you that one of the greatest strategies of the enemy to distract you from the one thing, to derail you from the one thing, is to distract you with many things. That's distraction is the great enemy to your devotion. And yet I know you hear that and some of you go, well then Ben, what are you advocating? Like, so the trick is, kids, you gotta quit college. Like, is that what you're saying? Well, no, I think if we're all honest in here, the reality is our problems are not our biggest problem. Our anxieties about our problems are our biggest problem. Jesus warned us about this. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, don't be anxious, saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? He says, the nations do that. You seek the kingdom of God. And I want you to note the contrast there. Jesus presents anxiety as one of the greatest dangers keeping you from pursuing your God-given destiny. That one of the ways the enemy is going to derail you from the one thing is to fill you with anxiety about many things. And as I thought about our time here at Passion 22, my mind kept going to Luke chapter 8, Jesus' warning at the very beginning of his ministry. He tells this story of what he longs to do, that he wants to take his word and plant it like a seed into the soil of your heart. And he says, I want to plant it in there, and I want to see it burst into life. And I want to see it become alive in you and grow in you and bear fruit from you. And students, I'm here to tell you, I believe God is doing that in this place. That God is planting the word in your heart that we do have a feast in the midst of the famine. There is a great rescue that's worthy of a great response. We do have a holy God who loves us and his identity changes our identity. And there's a world that desperately needs this word and we are sent out to proclaim it. But then in that same sermon, Jesus warns there's going to be dangers as the word is planted. And one of the dangers he warns of is a weed that will grow up and it will choke out that little plant before it bears life in you. And his disciples asked him later, what's the weed? And he said, the weed is the worries of this life that he said, many of you are not experiencing the blessing of God in your life because the word of life is being choked by the worries of life. And it's hard to imagine that. Jesus, the Son of God, standing in front of them, giving them their holy mission and saying, but when you leave here, distraction and anxiety will derail you from your God-given destiny. And I'm here to tell you that the enemy has been particularly successful with this tactic in your generation because we live in an anxious day that anxiety levels in the U.S. have been going up every year since 2008, and now over 40% of Americans report clinical levels of anxiety. And it's landed particularly hard on your generation. And there's multiple reasons for that. But foremost among them is the rapid change in technology that has occurred within your lifetime. That if you're 25 here at Passion 22, you're the last millennial at Passion. And email came out the same year you did. And so most of what you interact with online every day was created within your lifetime. Texting, Google, the camera phone, the iPhone, YouTube, all of social media has come out within your lifetime. Dimitri Christakis said we're in the midst of a large and uncontrolled experiment on your generation and the data is now just coming in on the impact it's had on you that all this information has led to dislocation with God 
with our friends, and we've been isolated from him and from one another, and we are anxious and distressed and depressed. Now let me just be clear, I'm not saying any of this to shame you. This is not your fault. You did not create these devices. They were handed to you as babies. And yet though the challenges of technology are not your fault, they are your problem, and you must learn how to deal with them. And particularly if we're going to proclaim this word to the world, the world will not be impressed if we preach a prince of peace but live lives of stress. But the good news is we've not been left without recourse. And Jesus said it in Luke 12. He said, don't be anxious to his disciples. He said, the nations do that. You seek my kingdom. And what Jesus presents to us is that life with him has the potential to be characterized by a lack of anxiety. So how do we live into that? Well, Paul takes Jesus' perspective and he brings it down into three practices for us. But he begins in verse 6 by saying, do not be anxious about anything. Which isn't that great? He says anxiety is never godly. You are not obligated by God to be anxious. Now let me clarify by saying that, that the word anxious here that Paul is using means to be drawn in many directions and distracted. That today we use the word anxiety to talk about a wide range of issues, including some serious medical ones. And nothing I'm about to say is meant to dissuade you from the value of counseling or at times medical care. But I think all of us in here have experienced that we can't focus on anything because we're distracted by everything. And Paul is saying here that, hey, anxiety like that is not godly. God's not calling you to live that way. That doesn't mean you don't care about what he's asked you to carry. It just means the shoulder-tensing, scalp-drying, chest-tightening way we carry it, he doesn't want you to carry it that way. And so what do we do in response? He says, don't be anxious about anything in chapter 4, verse 6. But he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Do you see the parallel? I am anxious about no thing, but I pray about everything. We release our worry to the Lord. And yet I know some of you hear that and go, that's it, Ben. Just pray more. Thanks. Well, before we knock Paul's theories here, I need us all to acknowledge that we all take our anxiety somewhere. So before we knock his theory, let's evaluate our own. Like, what would your verse say? Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, eat every snack in the pantry when you're stressed. And some of us take our anxiety to the pantry more than prayer. And let me tell you, I'm not judging you for that. When my wife and I launched Passion City Church in Washington, D.C., someone asked us at one point, hey, what are y'all eating? And without hesitation, she said, our feelings. I was like, that's right, that's true. <laughs> or some of us, it's be anxious about nothing, but in everything, dive into our phone to pursue distraction from the intolerable feelings of shame and guilt and stress. The sick irony of that being that this doesn't alleviate those things, it exacerbates them. Or there's a whole world of addiction open to so many of us when we have intolerable emotions, we're not sure what to do with. And yet here in this passage, Paul's advocating a different way that interestingly, the medical community over the last few years has over and over again in studies been advocating meditation and gratitude to alleviate stress. And I would tell you that I think the secular world is stumbling upon a path that has been ours in Christ Jesus all along. And it's time for us to walk it. So how do we do it? 
We start by releasing my worry to the Lord. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God, known to God. We'll talk about how in a minute, but I love the passive voice of the verb. He doesn't say, make your requests be known. He says, let them be made known. It's like they want to be, you just need to let them out. Like, I don't know about you, maybe some of you that when you wake up in the morning, your soul is like a pristine, placid mountain lake. And your first thoughts as you rise in the morning are, a chance to worship my Savior. Yes. And off you go. But for many of us, we wake up and all the anxieties of yesterday are waiting for us. And as we wake up in the morning, they're there, and you go, man, I'm worried about school, I'm worried about money, I'm worried about finance. And you go, but I don't have time to process all this. Man, I've got to go to work, I've got to get to school, so what do I do? I suppress them, I eat these feelings, stuff them inside. And as you try to push them down deep, people come to you and say, hey, how are you doing? And you go, fine, awesome, hallelujah, not today, Satan. And meanwhile, your guts are being ripped apart inside. Or for many of us, we pull them out and try to bury them in distractions that don't alleviate the pain. What's happening in this passage, and what I love about it, is God says, don't suppress your anxieties, let them rise. I love about this passage that God is not shaming you for your anxiety. He's inviting you, hand them to me. Try something different than your generation and say, rather than take this to the distraction of my phone, I'm going to take it to devotion to a Lord who can do something about it that I'm going to offer him my anxious thoughts. I'm going to let him speak into what's going on in my heart. And so he says, let your request be made known. How do we do it? He says, by prayer. That's the general term for making space to interact with God. And I know I talk to many people who are like, well, Ben, I don't have time to do that. But let me challenge you. In sharps shooting circles in the military, they have a saying that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That if you try to rush a shot, you're likely to miss. You're going to have to re-aim and shoot again. And your haste actually costs you accuracy. And I would submit that many of us, if we're honest, we've been successful at being busy. But we're not very efficient. We're like an octopus on roller skates. Lots of movement, but not necessarily forward. And you'd be more productive in life if you spent the first few minutes of it stilling your soul before the Lord. And so he says, I do it by prayer. I'm going to sit with him. And it's only when the quiet, the noise without, that we become so aware of the noise that's within. And so he says, bring supplication. Supplication is specific requests. I remember when I was in high school in science class, I watched a movie about mental disorder. And there was a man in it that was working on the railroad early in America. And in an explosion, a railroad spike went through his forehead and out the back of his skull. And he didn't die but it severed his frontal lobe, the part that regulates what you choose to externalize. It destroyed his filter. So he would move seamlessly from praising to raging, from crying to singing, and on he would go. And I tell you, I think about that often because that's how I pray now. When I get up in the morning, I don't try to regulate or sanitize my prayers to the Lord. He says, let your requests be made known, bring them to me. I say, okay, well, here they are, and I'll write on the page, how do you feel? Anxious scared, hopeful, nervous. I just let them rise. And then I do what David taught us to do in the Psalms. I query that emotion. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And often as I do that, God shows me the errant presuppositions underneath the emotion. Why are you anxious? I need this meeting to go well. Why? Because I want these people to think I'm intelligent. Why? So that they'll approve of me. Why? So I'll feel like I have value. 
Well, you don't go to a meeting for that. You go to your maker for that. And many of us are taking issues to the world that we're meant to take to the Lord. And he says to do this with thanksgiving. And you go, why would I be thankful if I'm stressed? We're thankful because we get to take these anxieties to God, the one being who can do something about it. I love that 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Psalm 55 says, cast your cares upon him because he'll sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Both passages tell us the same thing to do, cast your cares upon him, but for two very different reasons. Cast your cares upon him, why? Because he's strong enough to carry them and he's loving enough to want to. But that's the God we serve. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, fear not, little flock. Your father delights to give you the kingdom. God's not shaming you for your anxiety. He's inviting you, hand them to me. Even sheep, as vulnerable as they are, can feel strong when they have a good shepherd. And he says, you cast these cares upon me and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Abraham Lincoln, when General Lee marched 76,000 troops into Pennsylvania, panic took hold in Washington. Yet observers reported that Lincoln had an eerie calm in the midst of it. And he was asked about it later by a general. How was he able to function in the midst of all that chaos? And he said to him, when everyone seemed panic-stricken, I went to my room and got down on my knees before Almighty God, and I prayed. And soon a sweet comfort crept into my soul that God Almighty had taken the whole business into his hands. Now, prayer did not release him from the responsibility of making decisions, but it did free him to make good decisions. And it's true for us. The distractions impede good decision-making, so we release our worry. But we don't just empty our minds. That's where a lot of modern meditation practices go wrong. We release those so we can lay hold of something else. He says, I release my anxiety to the Lord. And then in verse 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about those things. I set my mind on those. I dwell there. I release my worries to the Lord so I can embrace his word. Jeremiah Burroughs said it this way, you don't pour wine into a shaky bottle. He said, still the bottle and then you can pour wine in. And he says, God has blessing he wants to pour into your life, but it honors him when we get still so we can hear his voice. And here we cast our anxieties on them to get them out of us so then we can have an attentive heart to his word and we let our mind dwell on beautiful and excellent things. I remember my wife and I had a friend in our 20s that she had a debilitating disease that was threatening to take her life and we weren't sure what her mood would be when we went to saw her, but what we didn't expect was how buoyant her spirit was. And we came to her and were surprised, and she said, man, I've been reading this book about a chaplain with a brain tumor that was killing him, but he made a decision with my last days and breath, all of us are gonna die. I wanna leverage my breath, my life, even my disease for the glory of God and the lives of as many people as possible. And she said, I've been laying in bed reading this book and I felt the same thing. I'm gonna die at some point. I wanna leverage every breath for the greatest of all purposes. And we watch her and we're like, wow, look at you. Look at the word shaping your perspective. Look at the way it's changed you. Your mind is focused on excellent and praiseworthy things. That's powerful. And for me, over the last couple of years, I'll tell you, I, I would usually wake up in the morning and 
and check my phone and like a leader, let me get information from the world to make informed decisions. But you know in the news today, so much information is just inextricably tethered with anxiety. I was anxious every morning. So now I put those away. I get the screens out of my time with the Lord and I developed a, a statement for myself I want to champion to you. Scripture before social media. More scripture than social media. Pray before you post. Scripture before social media. More scripture than social media. And pray before you post. Because here's my concern for you. If the statistics are true, you have exposure to the Word of God. About twice a week, maybe. And yet the average American spends three and a half hours a day looking at their phone. And so we're exposed to the Word. But our perspectives and our assumptions and our character are shaped by the world. And it's meant to be the opposite. That I want to be shaped by the Word of God and then engage the world with a whole new mindset. That's what I'm praying for you. That's my hope for us, that we would bring something different to a world that so desperately needs it. But it's not simply enough to read the words. We have to learn them and then live them. The blessing comes in the doing. And so Paul says, I've got to release my worry to the Lord and then embrace his word. I want to get it deep into me. And then I want to engage in his work. Look in verse 9. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Don't just listen to them. Live them out. The blessing comes in the doing. So I release my worry. I embrace his word and then I engage his work in the world. Uh, when my wife and I were college ministers on the campus of Texas A&M, we had some young men that were in a Bible study together and their minds were being shaped by the Word of God. And so they made a decision, hey, we want to together join a fraternity for the sake of the gospel. And they had a mentor on campus that strongly discouraged that. He said, that's not a good use of time, I would not do that. And I'm not necessarily advocating that as a ministry model, but these guys decided, no, we really want to do that. And so they all joined the same fraternity, and they decided, all through our pledgeship, we're just going to manifest the character of Christ that's been shaped in our lives by his word. And so they said, we're just going to live this out in the way we speak, in the way we treat people, in the way we respond, in the way we act. And they made it all the way through pledgeship. And as they did it, they got into the study, and that mentor who discouraged them said, man, I don't want you to do this, but they ended up doing it. They got in there and they decided not to start a Bible study. They each started a Bible study. And they began to start these Bible studies with these guys that now wanted to know what's the root system between the fruit and your life. We've seen you respond to the world in a different way from us. Where's that coming from? And each one of these guys began to lead a different little Bible study. And one by one, they saw brother after brother come to faith in Jesus through them. And what they did is they took pictures of these guys. And every time someone surrendered their life to Christ, they would take a picture and tack it on the bulletin board at the desk of that guy who had discouraged them from doing it. And so by the end of the semester, one by one, his bulletin board was just filled with the faces of these kids. They were like the DJ Khaled of evangelism. Another one, another one, another one. And on it went. And I'll tell you what I love so much about those boys. It's something I've been praying for for you. Passion 2022, what I saw in their eyes was a sense of agency, that we are not passive victims of a culture. We are transformers of the culture. 
because the Word of God is alive in me, and it's bearing fruit for the sake of all those God puts in my proximity, and I want that for you. And so I release my worry. It's not going to dominate my thinking so that I can embrace His Word and so that I can live out His work for the glory of God in my generation. Let me close by saying, man, does this work? Well, last story, there was a 24-year-old man, Sergeant Jeff Strucker, who was an Army Ranger in 1993. And he was tasked with his Ranger Regiment and with several other forces to go to Mogadishu, Somalia, to capture two high-value targets, men that worked for a warlord that in the midst of a famine in Somalia was using hunger as a weapon. And they were meant to be dropped in by Black Hawk helicopters, capture these men, and then exfil with Humvees to their base. And it was meant to only take a few minutes. But two of the Humvees, were, or two of the Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. And a mission that was meant to take minutes stretched through the day and into the night. And Sergeant Strucker was tasked with leading the Humvee column out of the city. And as he attempted to do so, they were surrounded by thousands of men who opened fire on them with machine guns. The first casualty of that mission occurred in his vehicle, his friend, Sergeant Pila. They managed to make it to the base alive by some miracle. And as he stepped out of that Humvee, riddled with bullets, his commanding officer came to them and said, hey, there's still men captured in the city fighting for their lives. You have to go back into the hail of bullets. But a special forces operator heard that and came to him and said, hey, you got to wash that blood out of the back of your Humvee. You can't have men sit in that. It'll traumatize them for life. Wash the blood of your friend out of that Humvee and then drive back into the chaos. And Sergeant Strucker records that when he went to go do that, as he arrived at his Humvee, his heart was filled with fear. And he began to panic and just kept thinking, this is going to be my blood, this is going to be my blood, this is going to be my blood. And in that moment, he did what he only knew to do. He began to pray. And as he prayed to the Lord, what he had been reading in the Scriptures that morning in his devotions came to mind about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That Jesus, in a moment of distress, got on his knees and got honest about his worries. God, if there's any way to let this cup pass for me, please let that happen. But then Jesus got perspective, but not my will, but yours be done. And as he thought about that, his mind began to turn towards the sovereignty of God. And he thought, the Lord determines whether I live or die, nobody else. And then he thought about his Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, I put my hope in him, and I have a future with him in eternity because of the finished work of Jesus. And he said, then the thought crossed his mind as he contemplated the sovereignty of God and his salvation in Jesus. He thought, if by some miracle I survive today, I will go home to see my family. Or if I die, I go home to see my Savior. Either way, I'm going home. And he said, as that thought struck him, a peace filled him. And he was able to function, got in the vehicle, drove into the city, loaded it with injured men, and evacuated them. And then he went back and did it again, and did it again. And the following day, there was a line of soldiers coming up to him that just wanted to ask him, how could you function with such supernatural calm in the midst of such chaos? And he told them all about a prince of peace who can offer peace that surpasses understanding. 
Young people, I'll tell you what's so encouraging about this verse is at the end of the day, it's not about a set of practices you got to get right. It's about a person you need to cling to. Then notice it says the peace of God is available to you in Christ Jesus. And then at the end, it says, and the God of peace will be with you. He's not just offering to send you his peace. The very God of peace wants to be with you as you journey out of this place with his word very deep in you, ready to engage in his work for his glory in the world. And so we started with the reality that distraction is the great enemy of your devotion. Anxiety is a threat to your intimacy. But the good news is the opposite is true. The best remedy to our distractions is a single-minded devotion. And the best antidote to our anxiety is intimacy with the Almighty. And that's what's on the table for you and for me. Father, I want to thank you that, Lord, in these days you are planting seeds in our lives that could bear fruit for generations in families and children and children and children. The potential of a harvest is massive, but the threat is so real that Jesus warned us about it. There are weeds coming that will choke out this word of life. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us a remedy to that, that you're not shaming us because of our anxieties. You're inviting us to cast them on you, to not try to bury the weeds of worry, but to uproot them and to hand them to you. And then to let your word bury deep down in us change us so that with how, however many days you give us, we can walk out with your word on our lips and engage the world you've made. So I want to invite you maybe to just take a brief moment here and do that. If your mind's wandering, if you're distracted, don't shame yourself about it. Let it rise. And just for the briefest moment here, I wonder if all around this room we could just give our anxieties to him. Maybe for some of you it surprises you. The first thought is, I'm worried about the health of a parent. I'm, I'm scared about school. I'm, I'm uncertain about this relationship. I, I have a friend I'm, I'm scared for, and I can't control their decisions. Don't try to fix them. Don't try to pray and answer. I just want to invite you right now. Would you just let them rise? deliver them over into the hands of your mighty king. And then if you would, I wonder if you could ask him to give you a vision of what it would look like to walk with his word deep in you. Back home, on campus, in school, what would it look like to push away the distraction and say, God, show me what it looks like to be a woman or a man of devotion. Ask him to give you a vision of what it would look like to embrace his word and engage his work for his glory and our good. Thank you, Father, for these moments. May your word sink deep and explode into life. And we pray that in confidence and in the beautiful name of Jesus.